This has been one of the most painful and difficult sermons to prepare for, and I'm confident that this is going to be the one of the most difficult sermons that I've ever given. Uh, there are several things I want to say from the get-go. Um, I'm not an authority on racism in our country. Uh, being a white man, I've, I've never been a minority. So everything that I'm going to say comes from a heart of repentance, a heart to hear the painful stories of our brothers and sisters around our country, and to learn from them and others who have felt the brunt of racism in this nation. I also want to say from the onset that I know that not all law enforcement officers are racist, nor do they commit crimes like that that was done to George Floyd last week. We have policemen in our church. I have great friends in law enforcement, and my own family has a long history in law enforcement. And I have to believe that the police officers that I know would be as disgusted, if not more disgusted, by the actions of the police in Minneapolis. I appreciate the police, what they do, and what they sacrifice. But something has got to change. We see protests happening throughout our country. And let's talk about these protests. Now, it may seem scary when you turn on the news, and it looks like that everything you're seeing is uh, looting, burning buildings, uh, but the reality is 99% of the people standing out in the heat, wearing masks all day, being so uncomfortable because they have this deep conviction to stand up for what is right, to fight peacefully for a better future. The, the rioting and the looting isn't a part of the Black Lives Matter movement. If you are having a conversation with somebody and they say, you know, what happened to George Floyd, you know, that's terrible. But these riots got to stop. I think you should stop them in their tracks. Okay, because they're missing the point. The script should be flipped. It should be these riots are terrible, but the killing of innocent black people, that's what needs to stop. I have a lot to learn, and as followers of Jesus, and as leaders of this church, my wife Sarah and I have taken steps to better educate ourselves on the systemic racism and racial injustice that's happening in our country. We've spent a lot of time these past two weeks talking through issues of race. We both are just trying to learn and to process and to wrestle through the countless heart-wrenching stories that, of the injustices done to black Americans. And on Wednesday, we were in our kitchen, and Sarah said, obviously, we're not racist. We've never been. But it's not enough to just not be racist. We need to be anti-racist. And there's a difference. Sarah read this week that one of the things we should be intentional about is exposing our kids to different races and different cultures and to try and educate them on what's going on, uh, even though they won't be able to fully grasp it all. And so the other night, we were trying to talk with our six-year-old son, Dex. And uh, we had the TV on, and people were protesting. 
And we tried to explain to him what protesting was and why the people were doing it. And we have talked to him many times before about how we love everybody, no matter what color of skin they might have. But this time we tried to talk to him about what is happening now in our country, what we presently face. And so we tried to give him an example. And so we said, if someone was being mean to, and then we tried to think of a black child that he would know, and we couldn't do it. Now, of course, Sarah and I have black friends, but my kids don't. I don't know what it takes to remedy this, but I'm acknowledging something that I know that I myself am guilty of. We want to do something about this because we want our kids to, to not just to grow up to be not racist, but we want our kids to be anti-racist. See, black parents don't have a choice. They have to talk to their children about race issues because often it is a matter of life and death. White parents, we've got to do better, myself included. We hope and pray that this fire and this fervor doesn't go away when the protests do. And so today, I hope we can learn together that we have to do better. We have to do more than just, well, I love everybody. That's not enough. And the failing system in our nation proves it. We have to understand that racism, which is flourishing in our country, is far more insidious, evil, and complex than individual bigots, okay? It's not that simple. We have to stop washing our hands of any responsibility because we personally, we individually, are nice to black people. There's no simple solution. There's no easy fix. And I don't know the answers. But we have to take a long, hard look at, the, at our country and the experience of black Americans under the status quo. And we need to be horrified and outraged and appalled and torn apart by what we see. We need to sit with this reality and these emotions until we're convicted to action. Now, I know that addressing the issues of racism can make people uncomfortable. It can make people nervous. And many of you who are watching right now are wondering if I'm going to be saying anything offensive. Don't wonder. The answer is yes. I am going to be saying some things today that is going to offend people, but sometimes we need to be offended in such a way that we put our hands on the counter and take a long, hard look at our own mirror, our own lives, and change our trajectory and become informed. God hates racism. Racism is evil. And part of the message of the cross is breaking down walls of hostility between people groups. That's actually a, a, core mission, a, core, a core mission of the cross of Christ. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. It says this, For Christ himself has brought peace to us when he united Jews and Gentiles into one people, when in his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. May it be so. On the cross, Jesus made peace between different people groups, putting to death the hostility we have towards each other. 
did we not know? Did we not read that part of the reasons Jesus died on the cross is so that we would not hate people who are different than us? It's a beautiful message that the church has seemed to have forgotten over the years. That the cross wasn't just about forgiveness of sins. It was about breaking down the hostility between people. Racial reconciliation is a non-negotiable for Christ followers. It's part of the gospel. Now immediately, every single one of us watching this are thinking to ourselves, I'm not racist. I'm not prejudiced. And I agree with you. I know many of you who are watching online. You're not racist or prejudiced. But the disease of prejudice goes deeper than we think. And this didn't happen in our nation overnight. It didn't happen with the murder of George Floyd on the streets of Minneapolis. No. Genesis 4.10 says this, The Lord said, What have you done after Cain killed his brother Abel? Your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. When Cain killed Abel, the blood cried out to God from the ground. And here in America, we have 400 years of blood crying out from the ground. We have to wake up from the dream of our American exceptionalism. I once read that the original sin of America was racism. And I agree, but let's take it a step further. I believe that the original sin of America was white supremacy. I once heard that the statement that, that white Americans are oblivious to all of the major advantages of being powerful. At first, I was offended. I'm like, I've worked hard. No one's given me any privileges because I'm white. But as I've come to understand the systemic nature of racism, I understand and recognize that most racism is invisible to white people, but very obvious to minorities. Studies have found that over a two-year span from 2010 to 2012, young black men were 21 times more likely to get shot by police than young white men. 21 times more likely. Other studies show similar disheartening results. In 2012, black people made up 33% of the population of Chicago, and yet 91% of the people killed by police that year were black. In New York City, it was 87%. Too many young, unarmed black men are dying in our country. This is a problem. And the silence that we have is, speaks for itself. It, the issue is so much bigger than just police violence. It, there, it's, it's systemic. Systemic racism is a systemic and sociological condition that creates an environment in which particular kinds of people are excluded from the positive norms of that institution. It is the collective misuse of power that results in diminished life opportunities for some racial groups. This is institutional racism, and it's built into the system by those who have power. This distinction between individual and institutional racism, it's important because Christians tend to recognize and address only the first, right? We think that if we can just convert people and change their hearts, that will eradicate racism. And there's certainly some truth in that. Without personal change, we won't ultimately affect societal change. But we can pass laws, but if we don't change hearts, we still battle racism. But the other side is true as well. If we don't have just laws and institutions, we unwittingly continue to propagate racism even with good hearts. There's a parable that will help you understand 
systemic racism. Jim and Nancy are friends, and they're both seeking to lose weight, a noble goal. They answer an ad in the paper by a group called Fataway that promises they will lose 40 pounds in six weeks. What they don't know is that Fataway is not a weight loss program, but a research organization that is studying weight loss. So Jim and Nancy show up at Fataway headquarters, and they pay their fee, and then they're sent to two different parts of the camp. Nancy attends a camp that offered every kind of imaginable exercise equipment, a healthy diet, and personal trainers for every single camper. Everyone there is excited about losing weight. It is the perfect environment for weight loss. Jim, on the other hand, attends a camp that has one single building with no exercise equipment and no personal trainers. In fact, the only thing there is a big screen TV with lots of movies, uh, the diet that consists of junk food and snacks, and it's almost an impossible environment for weight loss. People from both camps come together for a two-week weigh-in. Nancy lost 15 pounds. Jim gained three. Nancy was horrified by her friend. Jim, what's wrong with you? How can you possibly gain weight at this camp? You better get serious and try harder. And Jim knew she was right. So he went back in and he doubled his efforts. But the next way in, two weeks later, Nancy lost another 13 pounds and Jim gained another two. Jim, I can't believe you are missing the opportunity. Are you not motivated? Don't you care? Are you lazy? What's wrong with you? No, Jim said. I don't know how you're doing it. It's not as easy as you make it sound. I don't think Fataway Camp is being very fair to me. They've made it really difficult. And then Nancy says, well, I can't believe that you're blaming others. You just need to change your attitude. You just need to work harder. Nancy, of course, assumes that Jim's environment is exactly like hers, and it is not. By not understanding how Jim's environment affects his initiative and choices, she mistakenly assumed that the problem was all personal when it was systemic all along. Spirit of the living God, open up our eyes to see the systemic racism that we actively participate in every single day in our cities, in our nation. Jane Elliott has been an advocate for civil rights since the 1960s. Here's a clip of her in front of an audience of white people. See if this hits home. I want every white person in this room who would be happy to be treated as this society in general treats our citizens, our black citizens. If you, as a white person, would be happy to receive the same treatment that our black citizens do in this society, please stand. You didn't understand the directions. If you white folks want to be treated the way blacks are in this society, stand. Nobody's standing here. That says very plainly that you know what's happening. You know you don't want it for you. I want to know why you're so willing to accept it or to allow it to happen for others. This is real. It's not political. It's not about right and left. It's about right and wrong. It's not about right and left. It's about right and wrong. People are dying. People made in the image of God. How many more people have to die for things to change? How many more of God's sons and daughters have to be murdered for us to realize that the system isn't working? When that officer put his knee on George... 
when that officer put his knee on George Floyd's neck for nine minutes, we all beheld the brutality of a failed system. Black lives matter. Black lives matter shouldn't be controversial for Christians. And hear this, it shouldn't be followed with a statement, all lives matter. Imagine you're sitting down to dinner with your family, and while everyone else gets a serving of the meal, you don't get any. So you say, I should get my fair share. Now, as a response to this, your dad corrects you and says, everyone should get their fair share. That's, that's a wonderful sentiment. Indeed, everyone should. That was kind of your point in the first place. And you should be a part of the everyone. You should get your fair share also. However, dad's one-liner just dismissed you and didn't solve the problem that you still haven't gotten yours. You still haven't gotten a fair share. The problem is that the statement, I should get my fair share, had an implicit two at the end. I should get my fair share too, just like everyone else. But your dad's response treated your statement as though you meant only you should get the fair share, which is clearly not your intention. And as a result, his statement that everyone should get their fair share, while true, only served to ignore the problem that you were trying to point out. Such is the case in the Black Lives Matter movement. Saying all lives matter as a direct response to Black Lives Matter is essentially saying that we should go back to ignoring the problem. Stop it. If you are a Christian and you can't hear Black Lives Matter without feeling the need to respond with the criticism, well, all lives matter. This is for you, Luke chapter 15. There's a hundred sheep. One goes missing. Jesus leaves the 99, goes after the one. The 99 are like, well, what about us? Don't we matter? Of course you matter. But the 99 aren't the ones in danger. The one is. Black lives matter. Judah Smith said last week, all lives do not matter until black lives matter. So where do we go from here? We're going to be posting links to some amazing resources. They're, they're, they're a good place to start for those of us who have resolved to never go back to the status quo. Stephen Furtick said this this week, and I think it's true right now. Guilt is not a strategy. Guilt is not a strategy. Oh, I feel so bad about that, you know? And I'm white, and I don't know what it's like to be black. I, I feel bad. That's not a strategy. Maybe we don't know the difference between guilt and repentance. Because none of us are watching, none of us have ever heard from a, a black person come up to us and say, you know what I want from you, white person? I really just want you to feel bad. Would you please just feel bad for me? Feel bad for the things that we as a people are going through. Nope, never happened. Feeling bad doesn't change a darn thing. Repentance is different than guilt. Repentance means to change your direction in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word is shuv and change your mind in the New Testament. 
to change your direction, and to change your mind. Repentance isn't falling on the ground, wailing, saying you're sorry. No, it's getting up and moving in a different direction. And that's what we're trying to do. That's what we want us to do as a church, as a community of faith, that we want to get off the floor and move in a different direction. And we want to learn from our black brothers and sisters. We want to have open eyes and open arms and open hearts for the Spirit of God to convict us for the own inequalities and injustices that we propagate, sometimes unwittingly. So let's learn together. Let's love together. Revelation 7-9 says this, After I looked, or after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. The that every nation here, the Greek word is ethnos. It's where we get the word ethnicity or ethnic. From every nation, every race, every tribe, every people and language. John used every word to include every group, no matter your skin color, language, nationality, race, or people group. They'll all be there in heaven, all standing before the throne on equal ground. I love going to the movies. I miss going to the movies. Uh, one of our favorite things, Sarah and I, was, is to watch the trailers and then to just become movie critics right after the trailer. We give it a thumbs up or thumbs down. The trailers are great. Think about it. When you go to a movie, before the feature film, you're shown a series of previews. They're, they're, gonna come to, they're not available in the theater now, but they'll be available in the future. You've probably seen hundreds of them, a couple minutes long. It's not the whole movie, but it's enough to give you an idea of what the movie's going to be like at some point in the future. The preview is a preview of something in the future. That is precisely what the church is to be in the present age. We are called to be a preview, a trailer of the future. We're supposed to be here and showing what heaven will be like there. And Revelation says that people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every race will be there. So why aren't they here? As I was preparing for this message, I found a poem written by a friend who's no longer with us, Dante Johnson. Dante would have had something very powerful to say about this moment something more powerful than anything that I have said. When Dante sent me this poem, he wrote, John, this, this poem comes from a paper that I wrote in seminary school, dealing with, with and challenging the church Christians on the existence of racism and to pursue racial reconciliation because it is what God has called us to. And because of God as creator, the depth of Jesus' work on the cross and resurrection, and because we know the gospel, the truth, we can depose racism and know that all people and their ethnicity are from God. And this poem is called God's Creation. And I would like to share you this poem by Dante Johnson as we end our time together. Beautiful are the days that come about, and even sweeter are the nights that shines with the star's light. Oh, how wonder are the, all people of the earth, 
from every nation, tribe, tongue, and race that breathes the breath of life that comes from above and that gives life to all creation. Thank God forevermore and sing of his majesty and marvelous works for he is God and creator of all, always and forever. Amen. May it be so.